Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. It's Wednesday, May 10th. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. Hey, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Wright Report, your daily news podcast. I've got seven briefs for you this morning that are shaping America and the world. First up, my friends, grab your maps because we are going to start first in Washington, D.C., where I've got an update for you on the U.S. debt ceiling negotiations. But then second, we head to Western Canada, where wildfires there are affecting both people and oil prices. Third, we then head south to the South American country of Paraguay, where the new president there is standing up for Taiwan and staring down the communists in Beijing. Fourth, we then head off to Afghanistan, where the White House is admitting that we have too few Afghan spies there to tell us what exactly is going on in that country. Fifth, we make our way to Africa with stops in Rwanda and Burkina Faso, where the presidents of both of those countries this morning are defending Russia and their interests. Next, we head to Spain, where a drought there means that the price of olive oil is going to go way up in the coming months. And then finally, we return home all the way back to New York State, where a pretty exceptional man passed away recently, and I think that you should know about him. But first, let's get to our top story of the morning. Late into the evening last night, the White House and congressional staffers huddled up to start pretty aggressive negotiations over the debt ceiling. So we discussed the particulars of that yesterday, but in short, Republicans want to cut overall spending while Joe Biden and Democrats do not. Now, to that point, Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy expressed his frustration with Mr. Biden, saying, quote, on February 1st, I went to see the president and I sat down with him saying that we should work on the debt ceiling so we wouldn't get to this point. But here we are, end quote. Well, meanwhile, Joe Biden said much the same thing about his, well, political nemesis. In fact, his press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, repeated the White House's uh, insistent talking point that Republicans just need to, quote, do their job and increase the debt ceiling. Although Mr. Biden did say something interesting yesterday. He said that he was considering raising the debt ceiling on his own. Now, that would be unlawful based on the 1917 law that we discussed yesterday that says that only Congress has the right to do that. But Biden's argument is this. The 14th Amendment of the Constitution, Section 4, says this about debt. Quote, the validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law shall not be questioned, end quote. So Biden's logic is maybe that part of the Constitution says that the debt ceiling and that 1917 law are unconstitutional, and therefore he can just instruct the U.S. Treasury to issue more debt. Unfortunately, though, even Biden isn't so sure that the Supreme Court would eventually agree with him. 
So he is putting that idea on the back burner for now, hoping instead for successful negotiations with Capitol Hill. So meanwhile, as the debt ceiling debate rages on, the U.S. government continues to spend it, well, a pretty breathtaking pace. In fact, the U.S. Treasury Department reported that America has increased its spending this year by $359 billion as compared to the same period last year. And a part of that increase is due to our growing military commitments abroad. In fact, just yesterday, the White House announced that it would send another $1.2 billion to Ukraine for the war effort there. And then, of course, there is the $370 billion deal that Biden laid out for the climate change initiative. That, of course, includes the subsidies to build out the solar and wind and battery and electric vehicle industries that he views as so critical to address global warming. So I will keep watching this one, folks, as ever. In fact, I'm especially watching for the debates around when we would technically default, right? Because the White House and the Treasury Secretary are both claiming that, well, it could be as soon as June 1st, but an analysis by Forbes magazine notes that it could actually be well into August before cash accounts get dangerously low. Either way, I'll keep you posted. With that, let's now move on to our second brief this morning, and we are going to leave Washington, D.C., and we are going to fly off to Alberta, Canada this morning, where we have got a very sad and, frankly, a very strange series of wildfires to talk about, which are affecting Canada's oil and gas production plus their cattle industry. So here's what we know as reported by the Globe and Mail, uh, CNN, and Reuters News Service. So last week, the Alberta province experienced a very unusual number of wildfires. Now, the exact cause of those fires is unclear this morning, but there are at least 98 fires burning, with 30 of them classified as out of control. But I'll tell you, that doesn't quite capture it, right? And to help us really get this and to understand it, I want you to consider this. So last year at this time, There were around a thousand acres that had burned in Alberta. Well, that is to say from the wildfires. But this year, those wildfires have consumed almost a million acres, right? That's according to Christy Tucker, who's an information unit manager for Alberta Wildfire. So we're going to come back to that, well, oddity for a moment of 1,000 versus 1 million acres. But first, let's talk about the impact that it's having in Canada and beyond. First, Over 25,000 people have been evacuated as those wildfires are raging. And of course, we pray for those folks this morning. Meanwhile, the oil and gas industry is shutting down operations in parts of Alberta, specifically the Brazo, Yellowhead, and Grand Prairie counties. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is removing anywhere from between 145,000 barrels of oil a day to upwards of 320,000 barrels a day, which is around 4% of Canada's total production. And that could affect prices at the pump, in part because that oil gets sent to refineries in America, which in turn, that gets sent to markets both in the U.S. and abroad. Although, speaking of gas, I should probably mention natural gas here too, According to Bloomberg News, some 15% of Canada's natural gas production is now offline because of these fires. And that could be problematic for Europe, 
especially as it's been leaning pretty heavily on imports from Canada, although that first has to go through American LNG facilities on the Gulf Coast. All right, we should talk about one other very important impact that these fires are having, and that's on ranchers. Right, Alberta is Canada's biggest cattle-producing province, and ranchers there were already dealing with drought and poor grasses, so these fires are pretty unwelcome news. According to the Alberta Beef Producers Group, some ranchers are having to move their livestock to rodeo grounds or other public spaces for now, although, thank God, no cattle are known to have died from either fire or smoke so far. All right, now before we leave Canada for our next story, I want to go back to the peculiar number of fires and acres burned so far. And let's start with a quote from the premier of Alberta, sort of like the the American governor equivalent, right? Her name is Danielle Smith, and she was speaking at a news conference about the very dry conditions in Alberta. So here's what she said, quote, much of Alberta has been experiencing a hot, dry spring. And with so much kindling, it all it takes is just a few sparks to ignite some truly frightening wildfires, end quote. And that is true, but it begs the question, who or what is dropping those sparks that cause the fires? Well, there are a lot of rumors going around, but what's clear is that something very strange is going on. Again, last year, a thousand acres burnt by this time, but this year it's a million acres. That's a little odd. And it brings to mind the cases of arson by people who are either mentally ill or having radical environmental goals in the United States. So, for instance, if you may recall the massive Palisades fire in Southern California a couple years ago, that was started by a disturbed homeless man. Then there was the Dixie fire also in California, and that was started by a serial arsonist. And by the way, a former college professor, his name was Gary Maynard. So let's see what the Canadian authorities come up with in terms of why these fires were starting. It could be natural causes, of course. And meanwhile, speaking of nature, we might get a little bit of help to the good folks in Alberta. Forecasters are saying that parts of that province should see some modest amounts of rain either today or tomorrow. Although, unfortunately, some lightning might be accompanying it. All right, my friends, with that, let's now move on to our third brief of the morning. And we are going to head south from Canada to the South American country of Paraguay this morning, which if you're not aware of this place, I got to tell you, it's pretty fascinating. Right? For centuries, it was inhabited by a nomadic people who were known for their sort of warrior traditions and quite beautiful place, too, by the way, grasslands and lakes and wooded areas. Well, anyway, at some point, in fact, the Spanish showed up, colonized it, and, well, that kicked off a few hundred years of dictators and generals fighting over, well, who had control. Well, things have settled down since that chaotic era, for the most part. And over the past 10 years or so, they have had a series of different elections. And the most recent one was a winner uh, whose name was Mr. Santiago Peña. He is the new president-elect. And four days ago, this man was asked a question about China. Specifically, he was asked about whether he would continue to recognize Taiwan or switch his allegiance to Beijing. He issued this following statement, quote, We will keep strengthening the historic ties between Paraguay and the Republic of China, Taiwan, and look forward to working on mutually beneficial cooperation projects, end quote. He then took a call from Taiwan's president, who thanked him for the support. Now, this is important for a couple of reasons. First, 
in that Paraguay is the only South American country to stand up for Taiwan in the face of China's demands that they drop their support. And it's also important for another reason. Paraguay's soy farmers had been pressuring him to drop his support for Taiwan so that they might export more of their product to Beijing. But he refused. With that, I'd like to offer up just one bit of analysis and opinion. So Paraguay now joins countries like Fiji in standing up to China, even if it means economic hardship. And it's pretty impressive, I think, to have that kind of leadership that just doesn't come up with excuses. They just do the right thing. And interestingly, we're seeing it happen now in two nations of Fiji and Paraguay. They have long histories of a very strong warrior class. Seems like there might be a connection there. All right, with that, let's take our first break of the morning. Now, most of you likely won't hear any ads over the next couple of minutes, so enjoy this ad-free experience, and we will be right back. Welcome back to The Right Report. Let's continue with our briefs this morning, and we are going to leave our last country of Paraguay for another country very far away, across the Pacific Ocean, in fact, across the Indian Ocean. Yeah, we're going to the country of Afghanistan. And it is there this morning that we are getting confirmation that when the White House retreated from that country, from Afghanistan, back in September of 2021, our informant networks, the Afghan spies on the ground, in other words, well, those networks were decimated. So here's what we're learning and why you should care, as reported by the Washington Free Beacon and the Washington Post. So last week, the director of national intelligence, a woman named Avril Haines, was asked by the senators about the strength of the CIA and the U.S. military's informant networks inside Afghanistan. Specifically, she was asked by a Senator Deb Fisher of Nebraska, asking, quote, It is my understanding that counterterrorism operations are basically now nil. We are looking at hardly anybody on the ground left to help us. Is that true? End quote. To which the intel director said, quote, the intelligence community has been clear about the fact that we are not able to collect as much information today as we were obviously able to when the troops were there. So intelligence operations are definitely degraded from what we had previously, end quote. However, the intelligence director was then pressed, well, can you give us some details? And she said no. Further details on all that issue going to have to be discussed in a classified setting. All right. Well, as much as the intel director might have liked to have had conversations about that stuff in a classified setting, it's a bit too late. Right? We got confirmation of degraded networks. Uh, actually came from the leaked classified documents from the Pentagon. You may recall that I briefed you on back on April 24th, specifically that Afghanistan has once again become a staging ground for terror operations, specifically based on the ISIS terror threat. So if you missed that episode, definitely go back to April 24th and listen to that intel. But here's the bottom line, at least based on my assessment and opinion. So the only real way that we can now keep ISIS at bay in Afghanistan is to rely on the Taliban, incredibly enough. Now, we might be able to rely on SIGINT some. By the way, that's captured emails and phone calls. We could possibly use that to, say, gin up some drone strikes. But generally speaking, our best hope in Afghanistan, at least when it comes to counterterrorism operations, is, believe it or not, to lean on our former enemies in Kabul, the Taliban. No matter what, folks, I'm going to keep watching this one, and I will keep you posted. 
All right, next up, let's leave behind the troubles of Afghanistan for two countries in Africa this morning with two leaders who are quite happy to support Russia instead of, say, the United States or our friends in Europe. So let's head to the first country that I love talking about. It's one of my personal favorites in Africa. It's the country of Rwanda. Now, if you don't know a lot about this nation, do not worry. Most people have no idea. In fact, if you have your map in front of you, let's let's figure out exactly where it's at. Right? It's a landlocked country that's squished between Tanzania to its east and the Congo to its west. And I got to tell you, it is absolutely beautiful. Right? You've got these dramatic steep rolling hills that grow coffee and tea. Then there's the Volcanoes National Park where you can see those incredible mountain gorillas and some pretty stunning views too. And then there's the capital city of Kigali, which is one of the cleanest cities that I have ever been to anywhere in the world. And that is largely because of the president, Paul Kagame, right? He's been in office since the year 2000, and he wins his elections by about 90 to 95% to 10%. Now that suggests generally, well, he might be stuffing some ballots, but candidly, he's pretty popular because he's done things like well, growing the economy, but also he does small things like banning plastic grocery bags to keep the streets clean and littering to a minimum. Well, over the years, he has had an increasingly close relationship with the United States government. In fact, we give him around $150 million in foreign aid each year, which is the most of any country around the world. But if you thought that that might, say, buy him off or get him to agree with us a bit more often than disagree, yeah. You might want to consider this. So two weeks ago, President Kagame was asked about Russia and the war in Ukraine, to which he said, quote, you know, you hear countries complain about, say, China and Russia and their presence in Africa. But how about them like the U.S.? What right do they have to be in Africa that these others don't have? End quote. Okay. Well, that is what $150 million a year gets you, ladies and gentlemen. How are you feeling about that foreign aid right now? Anyway, it's not just Rwanda that we've got a bit of a Russia issue with. So if you look at your map again, I want you to leave Rwanda and head northwest of the countries of Congo, past other nations like Cameroon, Nigeria, and Niger. And then, ladies and gentlemen, you are going to arrive at a country called Burkina Faso. Now, I think this country is cool for a few reasons. First, it's got three very beautiful rivers called the White Volta, the Red Volta, and the Black Volta. Second, it's also got some very big, beautiful savannas that are home to lions and leopards and elephants. And finally, its capital is, well, it's one of the most amazing words that you can ever say, and that is Ouagadougou. Yeah, that is the real name of the capital city, Ouagadougou. All right, for... A very long time, that capital city was run by the French when they controlled the country through their colonialism. But even after independence, Burkina Faso still had close relations with France, from, say, trade to national defense. That is, until a couple months ago, when the military leaders of Ouagadougou threw out the 400 French special forces that were there to fight Islamic radicals. Well, the question then became, who's going to fill that void to help fight those Islamic radicals? Well, the Burkina Faso government, those military leaders, they decided on the Wagner Group. Yeah, that's the Russian paramilitary group that is operating all throughout North and Central Africa. 
and they collect gold and things like diamonds in exchange for fighting whichever group or tribe that they're, well, asked to kill. Well, late last week, the acting president of Ouagadougou, that is to say, a man named Ibrahim Traore, he made very clear what he thought about the Russians and the French too. All right, so the context here is that he'd been asked about the war in Ukraine and Vladimir Putin, and here's what he said. Quote, The departure of the French army does not mean that France is not our ally, but we have other strategic allies, too. We have new forms of cooperation. Russia, for example, is a new strategic ally, end quote. Hmm. He then added that Moscow was a major supplier of military equipment and gear, although he refused to give further details. So the point, ladies and gentlemen, is that throughout Africa this morning, the U.S. and our allies are losing influence. And there are a variety of reasons for why you should care about that. I'm actually working on a really big brief that covers Africa in much greater detail on this. But just to give you one example, right, the world's largest reserves of bauxite come from the West African nation of Guinea. And from that bauxite, folks, we get aluminum, which we need for consumer products and most especially military hardware. So more to come on this, but for now, you should know that we have got some troubles in Africa to watch out for from, well, from Rwanda to Ouagadougou. Hmm. All right, my friends, let's, let's jet off from Africa this morning and head to Europe, specifically to the country of Spain. And if you are at all a fan of olive oil, this one is for you. The French media outlet AFP is reporting that Spain is suffering from a horrible drought and some uncharacteristic heat. And that will likely lead to what's being called a catastrophic set of damage to olive trees and, subsequently, the world's largest production of olive oil. So according to the Small Farmers Union and the Spanish government, very little rain has fallen on the southern part of that country, about 50% less than normal. And, no surprise, reservoirs are at 25% of capacity. Well, unfortunately, that very dry region is also where the olive industry is based, with supplies of about 50% of the world's olive oil. And that means with less supply, consumers all around the world are probably going to feel the pinch. In fact, olive oil is now trading at $6,400 a ton, give or take, while a year ago, that was $3,700 a ton. So my friends, if you like your olive oil, you might want to try to find some deals right now because odds are they are not going to last for long. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are almost done with our around-the-world trip this morning. But we have to head back home to America first for one final story. So enjoy this next break, which will be ad-free for now, and we will be right back. Welcome back to The Right Report with one more stop before I let you go. On April 19th, a very special man passed away. His name was Dr. Michael Brescia. Now, to be clear, I didn't know him. I just read his obituary, and I was very moved by it. And I think you will be too, because he represents something very special that you just don't see much anymore, especially in medicine. So let me tell you a story. Dr. Brescia was born in 1933 and raised in the Bronx. His mother was an Italian immigrant. She only spoke Italian in the home. His dad was a pretty simple guy, worked odd jobs to get by. As Dr. Brescia would later say, they didn't have much, 
including heat during the wintertime. His father would bundle him up at night with his coat. Well, Dr. Brescia at first didn't care much for school. He preferred, as he said, to monkey around with his friends in the Bronx. And so one day he was tested for his IQ. And his teachers thought that there was some sort of mistake because the response to that test suggested that he was actually pretty darn smart. Well, as he got himself and his studies straightened out, he saw a man one day walking down the sidewalk. He was a very dapper fellow who'd gotten out of a very fancy car carrying a black bag. Well, it turns out that the man was a doctor. And that was the spark that turned Michael Brescia into Dr. Michael Brescia. Well, after medical school, he and a colleague were working on a big challenge at the time. It was how to connect a dialysis machine to people with failing kidneys. Right? There was an existing procedure, but it was pretty risky, especially for infections and various complications. But he and his colleague discovered a different way. So in short, it involved connecting an artery to a vein. But it was revolutionary in that it solved a lot of the risk and complications from the previous procedure. Well, this discovery left him with a bit of a pickle. Right? Investors that he talked to were very eager to work with him to set up dialysis centers all around the country. And he would have made a mint. But it would have required a delay in care until the new dialysis centers could be scaled up nationally using his exclusive procedure. Well, then he talked to his dad about it, who gave him this advice. Hurry up and give it to the people. And so the doctor did. Instead of cashing in, he published his technique and his findings in the New England Journal of Medicine back in 1966. And the field of medicine adopted it in very short order, forever changing dialysis for millions of people in America and around the world. Now, that in and of itself is pretty darn impressive, isn't it? But Dr. Brescia wasn't done. He later went on to pioneer the modern practice of palliative or hospice care for the dying. And as he said, quote, We learned to live with tiny victories. The patient was able to say, eat today, or go to church, or sit in a chair, or play with her children, end quote. And that commitment to care is something that he said the U.S. medical system has largely abandoned over the years, mostly for profit. Quote, he said, the art of medicine comes from loving your patients and caring for them. But we've lost our patients to the managed care companies and the insurance companies. The doctor-patient relationship is gone. Doctors today are just technicians, end quote. As but one example of the care that he said people deserved, he told the story of a homeless woman who was nearing the end of her life that he was working with. But she didn't know when her birthday was. And so he and the staff at Calvary Hospital brought her a cupcake and sang happy birthday to her every day until she died. And that, my friends, I think is a special man indeed. And he is worth remembering this morning as we part and enjoy our days. And he will be remembered. He is survived by six children and nine very lucky grandchildren. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude your morning brief. As always, I will see you tomorrow, God willing. Until then, I leave you with the creed of every good spy 
and every wise American. They're the words from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Good day.